You are in the ring with Hector Colon, seven-time national boxing champion turned nonprofit president and CEO. Hector knocks out the big issues facing social services today with high-impact leaders from around the U.S. In the Ring is a creation of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan and is produced by No Studios. And now, here's Hector Colon. Hello, 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 and welcome to In the Ring with Hector Colon, the show that gets real about the challenges facing the social services sector and the people we serve. Here's the bottom line. Pay is not commensurate to the value our colleagues provide society. Programs and policies are not advancing quick enough in order to address the true needs of the people we serve. And the financial viability of our sector is in jeopardy. That's why this year we're going to take on these issues with people at the center of these challenges, true champions who are willing to get into the ring with me. And as my coach Shorty used to say, Let's go, champ. In the ring with me today is David Dewey. David, welcome. And thank you so much thank for you. being here with me today. Hector, it is so great being here. Can't wait. Great. David Dewey is the president and CEO of Lutheran Community Services Northwest. David brings with him decades of experience serving communities across Washington, Oregon, and Idaho and has an outstanding reputation a lead of leading innovative services that support people of all ages and backgrounds. He has led Lutheran Community Services Northwest based in Tacoma, Washington, where they lift up the lives of 40,000 individuals each year and has done that since 2014. As the president and CEO, David has propelled programs that deliver behavioral health, child welfare, services for families, refugees, and older adults. Recently, David oversaw the agreement of, for Compass Housing Alliance to become an affiliate of Lutheran uh, Community Services Northwest, and we'll get into that a little bit more into our conversation today. Prior to joining Lutheran Community Services Northwest, David led Hope Sparks, another Tacoma-based nonprofit, and he did that for 13 years. David has served in a nonprofit field since he graduated from Pacific Lutheran University in 1989, where he had a degree in social work. He has extensive experience working with board development, fundraising, and systems management. Again, welcome, David. So happy to be with you. David, I think it's fair to say that it's probably never been more difficult to be a CEO than it is today. We just experienced the, uh, just recently, we experienced a pandemic, COVID. We've had the civil unrest, a lot of political polarization. People are experiencing more anxiety, depression, and addiction than we've seen in a long time. So we're really looking forward to this conversation. Are you ready? Let's go, Hector. I'm ready. Great. want to start off with, uh, our, with our workforce. We know that today, voluntary turnover can range anywhere from 35 to 55%, depending on which program uh, they're in within our sector. David, I know you've spent a lot of work on, on workforce challenges and issues. Can you share some of the creative ways that your organization is attracting and retaining top talent? 
Yeah, Hector, it is it is our biggest challenge right now is workforce. Um, we uh, are experiencing like you are and, and all of our colleagues across the country uh, right now. We've got about 15 percent of our jobs that are open, which which is a high number for us. Part of that is is refilling positions where people have left. And part of that is um, new positions because we have new opportunities. We have more opportunities than we've ever had. But trying to find the people to fill those is, is our biggest challenge. So here's the creative things. And, and I heard uh, one of the people I really respect uh, talk about it's not one or two things. It's 100 little things that's going to put us over the top. Uh, one is we, we have a very uh, clear home office policy. So, you know, like everyone, we move to hybrid work. And, and we're not going back. I mean, some people are coming back and we have face-to-face -face services. But the hybrid work environment is here to stay. And those agencies that can help figure it out and clearly communicate to their staff, um, you know, what their opportunities are for a home office allowance. So we will help them with equipment and, and setting it up in that, that nature. Uh, we've also uh, embraced relocation assistance. We're recruiting people from, from around the country. Uh, we have an employee referral bonus. Um, and one of the little things, it might seem little, but it's been huge to our staff, is we've been reimbursing for their credentialing, some of their, like, uh, the fees that they have for being, you know, an MSW, Masters of Social Work, or other fees. We've been uh, reimbursing those. Th that's been a hit. Uh, this was a long time coming, but we implemented language pay. So we have therapists that speak over 40 different languages um, and they need to be compensated for that because that is a real that's a real skill. Um, and then our new pay plan, a, a very robust staff, staff recognition program that we just reinstituted. Uh, and then I'll just say that we have been really embraced diversity, equity, inclusion at an agency and a local level. Uh, and that. Uh, a lot of our prospective employees, uh, that is critical for them coming to work with us. Um, we also hired two full-time recruiters, which they're just busier than all you can imagine. So, Thank you very much, David, for, for sharing those insights. And it's really important for us to hear those creative ways and how you've been successful so that we can, we can use some of those ideas as we're facing our similar challenges uh, in our organizations. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, those frontline workers that are doing wonderful jobs at increasing the health mm -hmm. and well-being? How do you address pay and equity issues uh, for those individuals? How are you doing that today? Yeah, uh, great question, Hector. One of the things that we we did five years ago when we hired um, our first chief human race resource officer, and we actually got someone from Nordstrom. Uh, she came in and, you know, we're in three very large states, uh, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And so geographically, the spread, uh, our pay plan got sort of off whack. Um, and so having equity be at the forefront was really important. We just, we had to get a system in place and a pay plan that made sense. Uh, one of the things that happened as well is that the state of Oregon passed some very strict equity laws. Uh, so we were are luckily we we're already on that path for equity and, and really looking at it. Um, and uh, but Oregon sort of sped up the pro the process for us because legally we were bound to do it. Yeah, no, thank you for 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 sharing that. You know, it's really an important issue to make sure we're we're paying our staff in an equitable manner, but 
also more mm-hmm. importantly for the difference and the value they provide for the people we serve yeah. and the larger society. And I know that you are definitely committed to that. David, I want to go into, um, I call it equity, diversity, inclusion. You call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, but we both have had um, some personal criticisms of our of the work that we have been advancing within our respective uh, organizations. I'm Puerto Rican. You're Norwegian. Uh, and yet we've had similar backlash in, in the work that we're trying to accomplish. Can you share some of those personal criticisms and how you've addressed them? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Hector. This this gets personal and um, it, it goes back. It's never been harder a harder time to be a leader in my profession. Um, and uh, so you and I are called to make stands when George Floyd happened. Uh, you know, if we didn't say anything, that says a lot. So we had to make a statement and proudly we did. And I know that you did. And there was some backlash from that. Um, there's been backlash when I haven't made a statement about a particular thing. Uh, I think the important thing is, is that we, we get out there, we listen to the voices, we listen not only to our employees, but our clients. Uh, and when that backlash comes, like, I'll give you a couple of examples with uh, some of our um, services, you know, we've had a backlash of, oh, that you're not me personally, but our agency is based on white supremacy values or structures. And my first response five years ago would have been really defensive, but I've, I've tried to do the work uh, with my own fragility and, um, and then just instead of getting defensive, getting curious, okay, what does that mean? And then, so uh, when that happened, it was from a group of folks and one of our offices, we just went down and we like, Hey, let's talk about this. Let's, let's listen. The other example is uh, when I, I had a very strong uh, statement about George Floyd, I was accused of hating all cops. Nothing could be, I've never even thought about that. Nothing could be further from the tr- truth. I, I, I respect the police force and stuff. And so the same thing happened with this particular individual. I was curious. I'm like, how did you come to that conclusion? And, and we've talked about it and really come to this, this fun sort of um, sort of agreement that we might see things a little bit differently, but 95% we see the same. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, some very similar situations I've had at LSS, one with an individual thought that I hated all cops. And, you know, we had a conversation and that conversation ended in hugs and tears. You know, another another situation I had was with a donor who asked to be take, uh, taken off the donor list because he didn't like what we were saying. I met with the individual, and this was a donor that gave $100 one time. Uh, just recently, mm-hmm. he gave us $5,000, and he will uh, wants to continue to be a donor with LSS. So you're right on. It's just how do we have those conversations, authentic conversations, be real, but have some empathy and respect and understand one another uh, in your case, it was very successful. A few situations in my case as well. So have those authentic conversations. They're, they are really important. Okay, that brings this round to a close. In round two, we're going to talk about behavioral health crisis in our country and how your organization is addressing these big needs. 
We also will touch on what you're doing to work with system leaders to ensure people are receiving a full range of services uh, as long as they need them. Okay, are you ready for round two? Yeah, let's go, Hector. Ready for round two. Great. You know, about two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I called our dear friend Susan Dreyfus, and I asked her, who are the best CEOs across the country that I can contact so that I can learn from them? And you were on that list, David, uh, specifically relating to your efforts with behavioral health issues and, and the programs and the innovations you've had uh, in your organization. So I wanted to touch on that. What are you doing in this space and why is it important for you and your organization? Yeah, great question. Uh, first of all, Susan, to put me in that list is, is very humbling. Uh, I might have to owe her a dinner or something, but um, I'm a huge fan of Susan. Um, so behavioral health is core to what we do. It's probably about 50% of our budget uh, right now. And it includes, in one way, ways we've been successful, and this is this is what I hear. When I was at Hope Sparks, I led a, a, a behavioral health clinic as well, is for, for you to be successful in, a, in a, a large setting, you really have to have a niche. What are you better at than anyone else? And, and a few things that we do really, really well. We have, a, we have a good number of therapists, as I said before, I think that speak over 40 uh, different languages that work with our immigrant and refugee population. Uh, and so we are sought out for that. Uh, the other things we do are like sexual assault, victimless, uh, and, and uh, victims as well. We have therapists just specifically designed for that. Uh, and then also our child welfare uh, wraparound programs. We have therapists that are, that are specifically designed for that. So we don't do your sort of traditional therapy much anymore, where someone will just call in and they'll have a presenting problem. We're very focused. Uh, and that has helped us grow. Um, and, you know, as we're talking about the challenges in the country right now with division and COVID and, and civil unrest, we as a collectively as a country are not doing well. I mean, the stats for mental health, as you mentioned, depression and suicide are off the charts. So we have to respond. We have to be available. Uh, and uh, that's where we're seeing a lot of opportunities right now is to grow. And the question is, can we find the staff? Can we find the behavioral therapists? That's been our biggest challenge. Right. Uh, for us as well. You know, what is the larger impact you have had on the greater society through your behavioral health efforts? Have you been able to, to articulate that return on investment when you're able to serve them and the difference it makes in their lives? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, in uh, Tri-Cities, which is Yakima, not Yakima, but uh, uh, three cities that are very close together uh, in uh, central Washington. Um so we have a wraparound program and what we've been able to do is, is keep kids out of um, foster care and keep them out of juvenile detention, which saves, mil I mean, we, we have saved that uh, community millions of dollars. Um, it's Kennewick, Richmond and Pascal. Uh, we have saved them millions of dollars by those efforts. And then they keep increasing our budget just because of they, they understand and we have good partnerships with the foster care system and with the juvenile detention system because they know it's like, hey, 
how you keep doing your work because we want to be less busy. Um, and then, so those are real numbers that, that can add up. Uh, the others as well, you know, if we had time, we could go into how, you know, refugee resettlement and you know, successful, you know, not only resettlement and them getting a job in a house, but mentally, if they're doing well, uh, how that just benefits the society. Yeah, no, thank you very much. The the research and the evidence is very clear that early intervention for child welfare and individuals that penetrate the criminal justice system, the return on investment is totally there. Thank you for for yep. sharing uh, proof of that through your uh, for your through your organization. How about mm-hmm. prevention programs? Um, do we have enough of them? And and what are you doing in that space? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, the answer is always no. Do we have enough of them? No, uh, we wouldn't have some of the the structural problems that we have now. Um, so no, we don't have enough of them. We do some prevention programs. I would label them more early intervention, and um, and uh, so so most of our problems, like with our wraparound services that I will go back to, is when either the school or DSHS, which is our local, um, you know, state agency for child welfare, uh, if they identify something, they will make a recommendation into that program. And we'll immediately, through an evidence-based program, surround this family with services. It's not just the kid, it's the family. Uh, So it's those uh, early intervention programs that we're really good at uh, and, and hoping to, you know, to save time, money, but more importantly, a child, you know, throughout the system. Yeah, and those evidence-based programs that you you mentioned is key, right? So how do we make yep. sure that we're using programs that we know works and the evidence mm-hmm. shows works and, and uh, across populations? So that's an important uh, point as well. You know, we talked about... Um, these programs, and sometimes a majority of our funding comes from government. I know it does uh, for uh, LSS in Wisconsin, Upper Michigan, and most organizations across the country. But sometimes our government funding doesn't cover the true cost of services, and many of the services we administer are done through Medicaid. What have you, Mm -hmm. which oftentimes doesn't cover the true cost, what have you done to supplement those gaps in funding. Well, I hear Susan Dreyfus in my ear from for years is like, David, you need to advocate. You need to get more involved. Uh, and, and we have as an agency. So we just got about a 7% increase uh, in Medicaid uh, funding um, in the state. Uh, we, uh, one of the things I love to do is raise money. Um, and so whether that be advocacy, we just received, uh, the resettlement agencies just received $30 million from the state of Washington and $18 million from the state of Oregon. That had to do with advocacy and partnering with our other resettlement agencies. And then there's just the ask. Uh, we, are, we are unashamed. Uh, sometime our sector uh, has um, a bit of a poverty mindset, and we don't act like... Um, the museums or, or great air education, we just sort of ask for the scraps. Uh, we're, we need to be done with that. What we do is so important and transformational. We need to boldly ask uh, for, for large gifts. And we just 
we're about we just received our biggest gift ever of 15 million dollars uh which was a gift to help with senior services and that happened overnight i worked on it for five years but it felt like it you know what i mean it happened overnight and then we're raising money for our refugee resettlement with the afghans and ukrainians and so we just you know hector you and i need to be bold uh we need to be bold with foundations foundations uh, are really helping us. Uh, the family, we have a lot of good foundations in the Northwest and, and they have been extremely generous, especially over COVID. Uh, and they've really gotten involved in the workforce issue as well. They have funded us for a, a, a position for behavioral health uh, recruitment. And uh, so it's been fun to partner with them as well. You know, David, this idea of being bold that we should be at the table with the significant difference that we make in the lives of so many and getting that multi-million dollar gift. So yes, that's a that's a very important message. Let's be more bold. And I, I just want to give a shout out to a few of our organizations that have been very generous with us. You know, Bader Philanthropies, Northwestern Mutual, individuals such as Dave Berkey and John Silsath and and many others that that really trust us that we are going to be good stewards of these dollars and mm-hmm. and make good use of them. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, the message here is let's be bold and let's raise those millions and millions of dollars. This completes round two. Just one more round to go. Next, we're going to dig into how mergers and acquisitions can work in the social services sector and what CEOs like us and our boards need to consider when making these important decisions. Okay, David, you ready for round three? I'm ready. Let's go. Awesome. David, when you stepped in as the CEO of Lutheran Community Services Northwest, the organization organically grew from $30 million to $60 million. Congratulations for that great growth. And now with your recent acquisition, you have grown now to 80 million. Could you walk us through this growth and tell us what led you and your board to move on this recent acquisition? Yeah, thanks, Hector. Um, strategically, uh, M&A mergers and acquisitions is just sort of part of how you would grow an organization. Um, The Compass uh, Housing Alliance came six years ago in our strategic plan when I went around and did a listening tour to all of our staff uh, and asked them, hey, you know, what is your client's biggest needs? And I'm sure it's yours, too, is housing. So then we made the commitment to get into housing. We could either develop ourselves or we could find a partner and uh, quickly um, found Compass Housing Allowance, which is another Lutheran-based organization up in Seattle and has four of the major shelters up in Seattle, homeless shelters. And then also they have uh, 16 large affordable housing complexes. Um, and I met, started meeting with their CEO and just started talking and like, how do we partner? And then it, it, it quickly graduated to, I finally was bold and said, hey, I think we need to merge. Um, and then at that time, that CEO left, uh, and so it, it became more of an acquisition or more of an affiliation uh, model. Um, our uh, missions were beautifully aligned, um, and our service area, and so they needed us for mental health and all of the other services we provide. 
uh, and also our geographic reach. They want to grow outside of just King County, which is the Seattle area. Uh, so it was, it was, uh, and then a lot of due diligence to make sure it made sense. Great. You know, mergers and acquisitions are really hard, just generally speaking, but even more so in our sector. Can you share with us what, what do you feel went really well with the merger and acquisition? Well, I also knew some of their board members. Uh, so we included some of their board members, which was which was helpful. And we didn't go in like really aggressively with this takeover. We we went in with, a, a, a again, a curious mindset. It was like, would we be, be better together or separate? Um, and then we determined that ultimately we'd be better together. Now, the first year is always rocky. It's always hard because you're you're figuring out systems and people and and everything. But uh, I am convinced that it was a it was a good decision. Uh, we will hope and we won't see the fruit for from it for a couple of years. Uh, the other things that gets in the way is just egos. You know, if you've got two CEOs, it's like, well, who's going to be the surviving one? Uh, and you need to work past that. And you need to address that at the beginning. Um because uh, it's not about the CEOs. It's not even about the organizations. About, it's about the communities we serve. And if a merger or acquisition is going to increase the effectiveness of how we help these, these people we serve, then we should do it. Absolutely. Any lessons learned or maybe things you would do differently? This, I mean, this is a big deal. This is a $20 million acquisition and uh, something that's not really common in our in our sector. Uh, what would you do differently, or any lessons learned you can share with us? Um, I had great partners, so there's not going to be a lot of lessons learned. Um, our CFO had a lot of M and A experience, and that was super helpful. Um, and uh, I think the learning is now in the is in how we're integrating our. That's where the real learning is. I think the process for, and, and we didn't acquire them. We it's an affiliation. Um, is that uh, I think the learn. I, I I just think that went pretty smooth. It's just now integrating. It is is and you know that it's going to be rough. You know, you got 200-year organizations. They're 101. We're 100. Uh, and so combining them, uh, it's, you know, that's going to be tough, but it, it's worth it. And we've got a plan. We've got a good project plan in place. And so. Yeah, that's a very important point. That yeah. that integration of cultures, You like you said, uh, there's legacy, mm. there's history within each of the organization. Integrating yep. those cultures uh, is key. And I hear from others that that's very important to make sure we get that right. So uh, that's a great. It's the hardest part. That's a great lesson, and 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 yes, mm -hmm. the hardest part. I want to. Yep. I I interviewed um, Susan Dreyfus again, our friend, uh, several a couple episodes ago, and she mm -hmm. talked about how important it was when CEOs are looking to retire or move on to other opportunities. Mm -hmm that both the CEO and the board should really be thinking about what's in the best interest of that organization and that community. And sometimes it might mean not hiring that next uh, CEO. Right. So I wanted to follow up to that uh, question is, how do CEOs like you and me 
also consider our role in the decision-making and consider what Sharon shared with us, uh, Susan shared with us and how we move forward. Yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, in my case, uh, I've structured my contract that that will protect me if, if we have a merger and uh, I'm not their surviving CEO. So we can sort of take my decision point off the table. Um, and uh, that is something proactive to do that d- just makes it easier. It doesn't make it easy. It just makes it easier. Uh, the other thing to do is is really, and I do, I do guest speak at a lot of boards and talk about best practices. And one of the things I tell them is it's your responsibility is not this organization. It's the people we serve in the community. So if there is that opportunity for a merger or if you're going to be acquired, um, you need to look at it for what's best for your clients and your communities that you serve, not the betterment of the organization. Um, and that's that's tough sometimes to hear because we get on boards. We love our organ. I love this organization. I don't want it to go away. Um, but if we could increase the effectiveness and 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 what we do um, to serve our clients, we need to be open to that. Because I, I love the word you used earlier, Hector, stewardship. This is not my organization. This is not your organization. We are stewards of it. Uh, and for that, we are looking at what's best for our clients and, and the people we serve. Thank you, David. I, I love that. And this idea of a contract where, um, you know, you'll be protected. But even if with that contract, you still make yourself vulnerable and you're putting oh, the yeah. best interest of the organization. Again, you're putting the best yep. interest of the community and the people we serve by having a contract like that in place. So I want to applaud you for that, for your vulnerability, and ultimately your striving to do the best thing. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I have one final question that I can, I use for all of my guests. How are you knocking out 2022, both personally as well as professionally? All right, I'll start professionally. 2022, uh, our strategic plan, our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to be the employer of choice. Uh, We do a a survey each year. uh, An outside agency does an engagement survey, and we're a little above average, which isn't close to good enough. So that is how we're going to knock out 2022. Uh, You know, that list I gave you, you know, I'm collecting other things. How do we be the employer of choice? Uh, so that's it for this year and the next three years. Uh, for me personally, I am trying to find ways to um, studies have shown if you can do, if you have a habit where four hours a week uh, you are not thinking about work, which is hard for me um, because this is a calling. Um, but I do need that habit, and so I'm getting back into cycling and paddleboarding and just getting outside and and, and just being as active as I can, so I can turn my brain brain off for work. So it functions better when I'm back in the office or, you know, at home working. Thank you, David. I like that idea of four hours a week where you're not thinking about work. It's sometimes so hard because everything is so interconnected with with our jobs. So uh, I might try to use that one. Thank you for offering up uh, that advice. So that concludes our final round for today. David, you knocked it out. Thank you so much for being (laughs) a guest here today. Appreciate you, my friend. Oh, Hector, thank you. It's it's such a pleasure to talk to you always. Thank you. 
there were some excellent points that David talked about that I'd like to just uh, recap for us here today. One, he talked about workforce being our biggest challenge. And he mentioned that they had 15% of their positions were open. So they they have a lot of business. They just don't have enough people uh, to be able to address those needs within those programs. But a few things that he mentioned that could be helpful to all of us is this his new home office policy where it's a hybrid, where more people are able to work home. So that flexibility, I think, is really important uh, for us at this point in time. Relocation assistance. Uh, so getting individuals from other parts of the country is certainly something that you can do, especially in light of the fact that many of them can work from their own home. You know, this idea of reimbursement for credentials, uh, extra pay for individuals that have a language expertise. And also, he mentioned about just doing more staff recognition, which is really important to help retain talent. People want to feel appreciated. They want to feel recognized for the great work that they do. And also, he mentioned about, he calls it diversity, equity, and inclusion. We call it equity, diversity, and inclusion, but that that's an important component of building up the right culture. He talked about having a plan around equity and pay to make sure that we're paying our staff, you know, as much as we can and commensurate to the value that they provide. We had an interesting conversation on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And David talked about how, you know, uh, there were individuals that thought that they had white supremacy values or that their structures were based on white supremacy. And I really liked how he responded to that. He said, you know, it's not, it's easy to get defensive because you know within your core you're not that. But how you get curious instead of defensive about those those comments is what led him to uh, good success. Um, you know, we talked a lot about behavioral health and how what, what David and his organization is doing is becoming more ex- experts uh, and focus on certain areas with regards to language, sexual assault, uh, and child welfare. So he has decided in his organization to narrow their focus and being experts in those areas and then growing in those specific uh, ways. Uh, we talked about the return on investment. It's very clear that prevention and early intervention for individuals in the child welfare system, as well as the juvenile justice system, when you provide them with services in a more proactive way, in a much more holistic way, the return on investment is extraordinary. We're talking in the millions of dollars. So it shows that it's not only the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. Prevention, early intervention, there's not enough of it. We need to do more. We need to be advocates, you know, advocate for better reimbursement uh, on Medicaid, advocate for more fundraising dollars within your organization. Be bold. You know, our sector should be able to raise lots of money just like the, the educational sectors and the universities because we make a significant difference in the lives of the people we serve. Lots of great discussion about mergers and acquisitions. You know, making sure that when you move forward with mergers and acquisitions, don't lose track of that very important component, integration. It's very hard, uh, but very important to success of mergers and acquisitions. And lastly, 
you know, as you're moving forward with mergers and acquisitions, it's important to not think about yourself, but to think about the community and the people you, you serve as the most important factor in determining how uh, you move forward. Lastly, I love um, David's idea of how he wants to knock out uh, 2022. Personally, he mentioned about trying to set aside four hours uh, within the week where he doesn't think about work. David, I'm going to use that idea. Thank you for uh, instilling your, your insights uh, and your values with all of us. I know that we can learn a lot from you. Thank you, David. Next month, we're going to get into the ring with Frank Cumberbatch, who will dive deeper into philanthropy and board of director responsibilities. Uh, Frank Cumberbatch is the vice president of Bader Philanthropies, and he also is a vice president on the board of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin in Upper Michigan. You can find out more about In the Ring with Hector Colon and all of our episodes on our website at LSS wis.org slash in the ring. Let us know what you think about the show and what you want to learn about future episodes. Please like, follow, and share at LSSWIS on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any of these important and incredible conversations moving forward. All right. Thank you, David. And that, that concludes our show. Con mucho cariño, with much affection. Bye.